If you enjoy traveling way off the beaten path, there are a few nations that promise to challenge you as you discover why they don't get many tourists. Sophie Roberts tells us what delighted her about such places like landlocked Chad in Central Africa. It's got images of rhinos carved into the stone that are 5,000 years old to show and prove that once the Sahara was green. For Tim Tendick, the rough edges of Romania are just what he's looking for. And there is not a hustle and a bustle. Everyone just sits and kind of enjoys the evening. And then you know that inside some of those hearty dishes with stewed pork and garlic are cooking on the stove. Cassandra Overby builds her European vacations around long-distance hikes with her kids. And just the realization that she's getting to see these things that I never saw as a kid and that her world is just being expanded. Tips for hiking with children and exploring the back roads of the world. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. You might be surprised who you'll find on a hiking trail in Europe. Cassandra Overby is one of those parents who takes her young children along on the historic trails that crisscross most any nation in Europe. In just a bit, she tells us how you can make it work with your kids, too. And world traveler Tim Tendick gives us an unpasteurized look at Romania, a country he finds with just enough rough edges to make you want more. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves with journalist Sophie Roberts. The author of The Lost Pianos of Siberia isn't shy about visiting many of the places others are afraid of to learn the stories of the people who live there. In fact, when a former U.S. president banned travelers from seven countries, Sophie had to see for herself what they were like and the challenges their people faced. Sophie joins us from her home in England. Thanks for having me, Rick. So, Sophie, there are places that really have almost no tourism, and you've made a point to visit some of them. Tell me three or four countries that we might call fragile places, places without much tourism. Uh, Tajikistan, Chad, Congo... Mm -hmm. Democratic Republic of the Congo, Papua New Guinea, Myanmar. These are all places I love, but they're not necessarily oh. at the top of everybody's holiday list. I've been to Papua New Guinea, but I've not been near any of those other places. Let's talk just really quickly about your experience there, because uh, you won't find many people raving about them in, in Condé Nast, you know. Um, tell me about uh, your experience in the Congo. What was that like? Congo is really interesting. I was working up in the forests in the Congo Basin where an incredible uh, woman, a philanthropist, was trying to save the lowland mountain gorillas and working with community to achieve that after major outbreaks of Ebola. And you watched a community being carried with some optimism for the future, with some attempts at conservation tourism. It's very challenging. There's some dark history in there, but it's an attempt to make something happen for an incredibly important bit of an ecosystem that the community needs some buy-in to see that there's a future to hold on to. And you wrote about uh, visiting Tajikistan in an article in the Financial Times. Yes, Tajikistan. I went there in the winter, which is also a time when even fewer people might go. I went along the Pamir Highway, which borders Afghanistan. And I was very interested by a story I'd picked up on of a local farmer who was trying to uh, well, he had successfully rewilded his patch of the mountains, the Pamir Mountains, to try and get some snow leopard tourism moving. This is an area that during the Soviet-Afghan war from 79 to 89, you know, the guns in those mountains were, were ripping the wildlife down. And he was trying to rebuild using a soft kind of tourism to do so. So there was a reason for me to be there. And as I got into that landscape, you know, those mountains are pretty special. They're humbling in both their size and their true wilderness. 
And let's pretend you are the tourism minister for the country of Chad, and you've got one minute to entice me to spend my vacation in Chad. Chad has got desert arches, desert history, rock art that goes back to Neolithic man. It's got images of rhinos carved into the stone that are 5,000 years old to show and prove that once the Sahara was green, once these animals roamed freely. You also have an incredibly rich savanna landscape down in the south where the elephant populations are recovering because of the work of a few remarkable conservationists. Look, Chad's very, very difficult. Its treatment of women is off the scale it's so bad. It's surrounded by the bad boys, Libya, Niger, Nigeria, Cameroon, Central African Republic, the Sudan. But I've been twice and I intend to go again. It's a place that scale sort of sets everything out of joint. It's the space and there's a massive variety of landscape and some pretty interesting folks to show you around. Sophie Roberts, you can get a job as the tourism ministry of Chad. That has actually got me thinking about going to Chad, of all places. We've also been to Papua New Guinea. And and Papua New Guinea, I had a fascinating time there. It has like a third of all the languages surviving on the planet right there in that amazing corner of Southeast Asia. Can you talk a little bit like the tourism minister for Papua New Guinea? Okay, I'm now going to talk as a mother, not as a tourism minister. I've been there a few times. The most recent time I took my youngest son, um, he was nine, and we were down on the east coast of Solomon Seaside. And the first time he pushed off from this kind of remote area we were staying in into the water, he pushed off. And then about five minutes, he bobbed his head out of the water and he goes, Mom, I've just seen a mermaid. I said, you haven't seen a mermaid. (laughs) <laughs> and he described this creature and he'd seen a dugong. He'd been swimming with a dugong and it was in the seaweed where he was swimming. It was absolutely peculiar. Whoa. And when, when a child encounters like something like that in a, in a wild place, you think, you know, maybe fairy tales do exist. Sophie Roberts is a travel writer's travel writer who doesn't shy from exploring the more challenging corners of the world. She's joining us from her home in Dorset, England right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her articles appear in the Financial Times and Condé Nast Traveler, and her book The Lost Pianos of Siberia has won high praise and been translated into a dozen languages. Sophie tells us she's working on a new title about Central and East Africa, due out in 2024. Her website is sophieroberts.com. So Sophie, that was just fun to take a little blitz tour of Tajikistan, Papua New Guinea, Congo, and Chad. Probably collectively, all of them have less tourism than Norway, which is probably my worst-selling guidebook. And uh, (laughs) I I just think it's so important for us to remember there are a lot of places that are open to travel but don't fit the, the mold for most people travel dreams. You've gone there. You've chosen to go to places that aren't luxury resort places but what I call reality travel. What is the red tape? What is the practicality of going to places like this? If you've got money and an American passport, is it just welcome? Or is there more to it than that? There's more to it. I say often I would never go into the back streets of my local town without someone that knew what they were doing. I rely Mm -hmm. heavily upon professionals. I wouldn't do it any other way. I also am evangelical about the ones that know what they're doing and the ones that don't. You can't just book it blind on the internet. That would be a crazy thing to do. You have to know who you're working with and why. 
look, we're living in an age where personal risk has come back into the decisions we make. We'd kind of forgotten about that until COVID. Mm -hmm. There's always a risk. We're human. Mortality sits very close to all of us. So I suppose I've always been aware of that. Yes, sometimes I'm traveling to places that have the, all the warnings from, from our governments telling us not to go. I treat risk as a personal responsibility, whether it's mm -hmm. in the back streets of my own town or if it's in Chad. I just make sure that I go with knowledge and I try to be as professional as possible. And in that respect, I'm watching my own back and that of others. You know, Sophie, I was in Egypt making a TV show, and I love Egypt, but it's not a place I would promote as a destination for everybody. And I say, if you want to go to Egypt, you need to spend about what you'd expect if you're going to London by staying in a comfortable and safe international class hotel and by hiring reliable local guides to get you in and out of places and let you know the context and know what's safe and what's not. And that's sort of my caveat. Uh, do you find that if you have a certain caveat uh, of course, there's a risk, but that it's not reckless. Do you find that it just takes that extra investment? Yes, recklessness is something that I want to be no part of. I'm always very cautious. I'm not I'm not saying everyone should go to these places. Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But those with an inquisitive mind and a sense of personal risk, why not? Why not? Because it can, it I, can be done, in other words. It can be done. And I believe that people are more good than bad. And I think that's really important. I think that optimism as a traveler is really very, very important to getting on a plane in the first place. So I don't treat everyone as if they're going to do me wrong before I've even started. But I am cautious, I am careful, and I rely upon professionals. One thing I picked up in your articles, Sophie, is that you're impressed by the fragility of things, the, the fragility of uh, the environment and, and traveling with an ecological perspective and the fragility and the preciousness of cultures, different cultures, indigenous cultures. That's a good theme to keep in mind, I think, when you do decide to venture beyond the, the famous resort destinations. Yeah, it's a nuanced and, and difficult relationship because in visiting places what is our footfall doing to damage them i'm as much a reader as i am a traveler and often i read stories about places i've been that people have been 50 years before 100 years before 300 years before and their descriptions of nature is something that's not recognizable now you know lake baikal in siberia there's descriptions of a 17th century mm. priest who just describes it being completely covered in swans now forget it so it's what we're losing is very present in my head as both a reader and as a traveler but what is left is also worth conserving and protecting and being cautious about and again how one interacts with those things requires the intervention of specialists whether they're conservationists on the ground or people that are worked working with indigenous communities to make sure they are not in some way negatively damaged by our presence it's a it's a nuanced thing and i don't go in there as a solo traveler expecting to understand or know it. I, I rely on other people's knowledge always in these more fragile areas. That is so fundamental, and I'm glad you're stressing that. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Sophie Roberts, and, and she's traveled to some of the most amazing places, and you can read much more about it on her website. That's sophieroberts.com. Sophie, I was impressed when you wrote that travel gives you plenty to feel strongly about. Can you just sort of sum up these travel experiences with what does it make you feel strongly about and why are you thankful for that? 
Oh, God, it makes me feel strongly about life. It makes me feel... I have friends who don't travel, dear friends, who say, what are you running away from? Constantly encourage me to go see a therapist that there's some dark part of my history I'm trying to disappear from. It's not true. I'm running towards things. I find travel is an incredibly positive act. I've chosen to do it a lot with my children. I prefer, I like the education they receive on the road. I like the connection that I get from human contact, which isn't to do with a digital relationship. I'm an optimistic person and it, and it feeds that side of my character. I find that people who are real travelers come home with, with a beautiful, beautiful souvenir. And that's a realization that the world's filled with beautiful people, with joy, with love. It's so rewarding to get out there and get to know our neighbors. And that's, that's sort of one of the fundamental joys of travel. I agree with you. It's joy, it's privilege, it's insight, it's knowledge. And it's travel to me is an act of empathy. It's not an act of consumption. Somewhere along the lines, we've confused those things. But fundamentally, it's about human connection. It's about feeling as another man feels. And that's what I love about it. That sums up the spirit of this kind of travel. Empathy rather than consumption. Sophie Roberts, thank you so much. And happy travels. Thank you, Rick. We'll look at the rewards of traveling in Romania, one of Europe's genuinely old-world destinations where you might actually enjoy learning to travel outside your usual comfort zone. But first, we hear how to turn your kids into eager long-distance hikers. It's Travel with Rick Steves. An extra set of eyes or two can enhance your enjoyment of a long-distance hike. When those eyes belong to your own children, it introduces an extra set of requirements that aren't often covered in many trail guides. Cassandra Overby advocates for seeing Europe through the backyard, you could say. She personally researches many of the long-established, long-distance hiking trails that have crossed Europe for centuries in her book, Explore Europe on Foot. Her work even inspired me to plan my own extended hiking trips in the last couple of years around Mount Blanc and in the Swiss Berner Oberland. As the mother of two young girls, Cassandra's learned a few pointers for including children on European hiking adventures, and she joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share them. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be back. Yeah, now you and I write guidebooks about hiking and traveling in Europe, and we're going to be talking about hiking with kids in Europe. But of course, these tips kind of apply to hiking with children anywhere, don't they? Completely. Now, when I was hiking around Mount Blanc a couple years ago, one thing I was really struck by was how many parents had kids on their backs as they were hiking this 100-mile hike. It's not uncommon for people to take their little kids with them. No, Europeans really love to hike with their kids because for them it's part of their family culture. They're walkers, so they're going to raise their kids as walkers. Now you've done this with your two kids, June and Ginger. Is it just kind of a chore that you do in order to continue hiking and traveling, or is it actually a, a plus? Do you find that it is a, a great opportunity as a parent? You know, I think, honestly, it's both. Mm -hmm. I have to bring them at this point because I go to Europe for so long. There's no way I could be away from them for months at a time. Right. But I found that the experience of having them there let me see a completely different side of Europe than I had experienced before. And it made me really notice a lot of things that I had never picked up on. I mean, the things that they're really drawn in by cows and playgrounds and different parts of huts and, and talking to kids who are foreign. I mean, it really changes your perspective on what you're seeing. That is so cool. Now, you've spent uh, several months with the kids in Europe hiking. Uh, what You had like two or three months and every day you did a long hike with the kids. Right. So it ended up being about 45 hikes over three months. 
So nearly a hike every day with some travel days thrown in. I know there's a million moments, but just share one moment where you were so glad to share that with uh, four-and-a-half-year-old June. You know, there were some times when we were just walking along, and she would look up ahead, and she'd be like, Mom, it's a junction! And she pulled out her map, because that was one of the things I did to help her feel big, was, you know, I gave her the map so that she could help navigate, and half the time it was turned upside down. But she really understood that actually there was some sort of organization to this whole thing, and there was a purpose. (laughs) And then we'd come across cows, and, you know, she would look so interested in just wanting to get eye level with them. And just everything, her joy at every single turn. I love it. I was just studying about traveling and hiking with kids. I've got a new grandchild, and I was just holding this beautiful little boy. His name is Atlas, and we're going to make the Atlas our friend in the next couple of years. And the Wilderness Society has a bunch of practical tips for traveling with kids, and I'd like to review some of these with you and just kind of come up with what really in practice would be helpful for us. So I'm just going to go through these tips and get your thoughts on that. Great. Um, first of all, not not a long hike, a, 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 an experiential hike. Um, make it feature-friendly. You're going to a lake or a waterfall or, or some kind of a goal. You're creating a memory. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. So you want to have things on trail that they connect with. So a lot of the trails in Europe have cows. They have little petting zoos at the huts along the way. You know, they love to try cheese from the little dairies. All of those things count as things that they're going to be excited about. And that's important to remember the kids. It's their trip, too. Right. And what I found, too, was really helpful is actually looking as small as bugs and rocks. You will never see the trail like you do with a child because they want to pick up everything, whether it's, you know, the famous green lizards that live in the Vakau Valley or, I mean, it's just everything. They'll find dragonflies. And that takes time. So you've got to allocate more time, probably fewer miles, but more time for those experiences and some smart pack-alongs. I mean, be prepared. What are some fun things you would take that you wouldn't take if you were just traveling without kids? So we always carry a little nature bag so that our kids can pick up rocks and sticks and bugs and anything they want and take them back, and we look at them that night. We also bring bug catchers because they like to catch bugs on trail and look at them with a magnifying glass. (laughs) But I would say probably the two best things you can ever have in your pack with kids, one is an audio book at the ready, because in our family we don't do a lot of screens, but I am happy to put on a book to be read to the kids while they look out and hike. And believe it or not, they'll just keep walking. You give them an audiobook or you tell them a story, they'll just keep walking for hours. Now, that seems like a very practical tip. So whether the child is on a backpack or whether the child is walking with you, uh, an audiobook. Right, an audiobook with Bluetooth headphones so that you can actually control the audiobook from your pocket. And then also pack more snacks than you could ever think you could eat because they will inevitably eat every single snack. It's so funny you said that because my girlfriend, Shelly, we were going like on eight hikes, and she brought eight Ziploc baggies full of trail mix and granola bars for each day. And I thought, come on, we don't need this. And it was the smartest thing. We needed those every day. It just kept us going. Right. So smart, so smart. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Cassandra Overby. Her book is Explore Europe on Foot, Your Complete Guide to Planning a Cultural Hiking Adventure. 
Cassandra's latest adventure is hiking with her children. June is four and a half years old, and little Ginger is two and a half years old. And Cassandra offers tips on hiking with families or hiking without families, routes all over Europe. You can find more information at her website. It's exploreonfoot.com, and that's with hyphens, explore-on-foot.com. Cassandra, how about gear when you're traveling with kids? I suppose, you know, adults can say, no, that doesn't feel right, or I'm cold, but kids don't communicate quite so well. So you got to be more sensitive about what they need with their gear. Right. So the biggest thing is to have all the layers for their little bodies that you would have. But if they're going to be in a pack, you actually need more layers because they're not going to have all of that motion to warm their bodies up naturally. Oh, yeah. So you really have to make sure that they're going to stay extra warm. Think of how you would feel in that climate if you were just sitting in a lawn chair. That's about how they feel. Good point. So nice hat, nice mitts. uh, Oh, yeah. So even in summer, we travel with puffies, rain jackets, hats, and gloves for everybody. And also, it's probably good to have a change of clothes back at the car when you're done. Completely. Sometimes we carry them, actually, especially pants in our bag, because the kids like to get into puddles and different things. I can't imagine a kid coming back after a three-hour hike without being a little bit muddy. Right. And (laughs) the other big clothing tip that I like to give people is gaiters. They actually make little tiny kid gaiters. And we had a lot of problems for a while with our daughters getting rocks in their shoes, and we'd have to stop constantly on the trail. But when you put little gaiters on their feet, no more shoelaces coming untied, no more rocks in shoes. Hmm. It's a game changer. When the kids get a little older, and if you've got several kids, it's probably nice to let one be the guide, the leader, and then rotate that position. Oh, yeah. They love being the one to show you where to go. And that's another good opportunity, too, to say, okay, go find the next junction. The only rule is that you have to make sure you can still see me. So if you can't see me, you need to slow down. So that's it. There's ways to incent them to keep going. I mean, there's a treat at the next river or who can find right. the most of this or who can... I'm, I'm, I'm glad you have that little nature bag. That's a wonderful idea. Well, and so speaking of incentives, um, what we ended up doing was we divided our hikes up into 30-minute segments, and we had a little timer that would go off every single 30 minutes, and that would signal a new phase of the hike. So that's when we would introduce a new thing, such as the bug catcher or the audiobook. But if our daughters got a certain number of segments accomplished during a hike, like uh, my older daughter, June, worked up to five segments of 30 minutes each, so two and a half hours of hiking. And if she did her segments, she'd get an ice cream at the end. That is, I can imagine responding to that. And I, <laughs> it I can imagine well. it probably helps the whole day go by more fun with the parents as well. Positive reinforcement. I mean, kids love to be complimented. You're doing so well. Great job. Uh, you're so strong. I suppose that helps move This along. works very well for hiking partners of all ages. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, too. And probably an understanding that there's no ward for heroics here. If you're feeling tired, if you've got a, a tender piece of skin, let's stop and fix it. Completely. Very, very important. Good trail manners. Uh, if you're a parent who loves nature, it's what a great opportunity to, to teach kids to be good citizens in nature. So, you know, you really have to teach kids. No, you can't just throw that granola bar wrapper when you're done with it. You have to put it in your little bag and pack it out with you. You could even finish up the hike, take the last mile with a bag and pick up anything you see on the trail. Completely. And think what a great family lesson that is. Kids would never forget that. They'd feel good about it. They'd celebrate being a good citizen in nature. Explore Europe on Foot is Cassandra Overby's preferred way to travel, and it's the title of her detailed guide to 15 historic long-distance hiking trails in Europe, as well as a few shorter routes she recommends. 
She's with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend how you can successfully take your children along for the walk and keep everyone entertained and in good spirits. There's more on Cassandra's website, explore-on-foot.com. Cassandra, there are endless hikes that you could choose. You've been thinking a lot about choosing hikes with the interest of uh, little kids in mind. In Europe, what of the great hiking destinations are also great hiking destinations for families? So alpine experiences are really great because mountain huts are great spots for little kids. They generally have you know, animals, and they are very accommodating with high chairs and things like that. By, about the animals and, and mountain farms, I felt like I was going to the beach, but it was up in the mountains. Right. And there's so many, and, and there's lounge chairs, and there's like a, a petting farm of little animals in the farms that you, that you can enjoy. It's yeah, just it's great. wonderful. And what I also noticed just last summer was all of the lifts seemed to be investing in children's zones at the top beautiful playgrounds, alpine-themed playgrounds. Right. So you see that in a lot of the Alps, but especially in the Dolomites. The Dolomites are incredibly family-friendly because almost every hut that you're going to walk to has a big playground. And not just a playground with some swings or a slide. We're talking like a giant metal structure made out of, made to look like a cow that kids can like come out the tongue of. We're talking really cool stuff that they like. And there are wooden ball drops. (laughs) There are kids' meals um, that are cheaper, which is nice when you're traveling and you're incurring the added expenses of your kids. And also travel is can be free for kids on the lifts and the gondolas. So generally, kids five and under are free, and kids older than five are discounted. And that's a huge savings when you're hiking in the Alps. Oh, it really is. That's great. You know, a lot of trailheads are served by public transit. I'm thinking of another way to save money. You're staying in a town. You don't need to just hike out of that town. You can hop on a bus, and it will go. It'll serve the trailheads. Oh yeah, and somewhere like Val Gardena, if you're staying in one of the villages, you get a pass that gets you free transportation everywhere in the valley on the buses. Take advantage of that. That's not uncommon anywhere in Europe. Is if you're staying in a hotel and they're part of the system, they'll have a pass on the public transit. And I love the idea of riding the lift up and then traversing across the high altitude and at the end of the day, riding the lift down. Can you think of a hike where you start with a lift, you enjoy the high altitude, and you finish with a lift? Mm, yes. I mean, they have those all over the Dolomites, but my favorite place is actually some of the hikes that are outside Wangen in Switzerland. Oh, yeah. So there's one trail, specifically the Eiger Trail, and you take, you know, cogwheel train and lifts all the way up, and then you actually slightly descend right below the face of Eiger, and then you end up at this really cool mountain hut, and you train back and over to Vengen from there. Wow. Is that different than the North Face hike out of up of Vengen? You, you go up to um, Amenhubel, mm-hmm. the funicular, and then I think you were, you were going in one direction for the Eiger walk. I was going in the other direction, and both of them have that. You take advantage of the funicular to gain the altitude. Right. You got a well-worn trail with plaques like history plaques and uh, flora and fauna plaques to explain what you're looking at. You've got a wonderful, unforgettable kids' playground at the top of the Almanhubel funicular. Mm-hmm. You've got a waterfall to hike under and behind. It's so impressive. I mean, kids love it, but it's also really amazing for adults because those shorter hikes, too, are good for days when you don't want to spend your full day hiking, but you want to spend some time in town. You or, go. you know, you want to go to the next village over and explore. My one complaint about the Alps is not a lot of wildlife. Right. I feel the same way, and then I also feel like 
yay, I don't have to look out for bears or wolves or anything scary. <laughs> when you got spoken like a mother, that's good. You don't want your kids <laughs> right. running about running from a bear. But there's, you know, I don't think you see, you see a lot of bugs, but you don't see a lot of wildlife. The number one thing I see when I'm hiking in Europe is wild boars. Well, you see the wild boars. Oh, yeah. I've seen them several times. For me, I love easy summits mm. because a lot of times I don't have a lot of time for an eight-hour hike, but I've got a couple hours for a hike. And there's some easy summits that I'm thinking of right now. Uh, in Edinburgh, you can hike up to Arthur's Seat. It's this beautiful volcanic peak. That's one of my favorite urban oh. hikes. Describe that to me when you get to the Ooh. summit. So you walk out of Edinburgh and you get into this grassland in the fields and you're walking up this slight incline and it feels like you're just in the middle of the countryside. You can't even imagine that you're close to town anymore. And you get to the top, you feel like you're the king of Scotland. You yeah, can, oh. it's incredible. And it's so close to just... You know, it really doesn't take a long time to get to those spots. And before you know it, you're there. Yeah. Do you have any Mediterranean summits or viewpoints that come to mind? Ooh. So the one that I did uh, this summer that I was really enjoying was actually over near Split in Croatia, looking out at the water there. So you can climb Moser Mountain, which is a real favorite of locals. And it's not that far. And you make your way up with these gorgeous views out to the water, out to the islands, back to Split. And so you walk up to this mountain hut where the same man has been opening this mountain hut Uh, for something like 30 years. And he makes this homemade pasta fajoule soup. And you get to enjoy it. And it's basically all locals up there. Very few travelers. And you're mixing culture and nature, which you're so good at. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Cassandra Overby, and we're exploring enjoying Europe on foot and some practical tips for traveling with children. Cassandra, it's been so fun talking with you, and I know a lot of our listeners are thinking, wow, hiking sounds great. Hiking with children, it's great as well. Can you share one one moment you've had? You've done so much hiking with your husband and your two girls in the last year. One moment where... You got together, you got to that spot, and you just thought, yes, this is a great family experience. For me, that happens a lot in the Dolomites or in Switzerland. It happens a lot, especially when I'm on a peak, because I feel like I'm so far away from where I am at home, doing something that I otherwise would never be able to do. And here I am with a kid on my back, and I'm feeling strong. And it's so amazing. You know, this summer, my daughter would look out, and she'd be like, these mountains are incredible. And just the realization that she's getting to see these things that I never saw as a kid and that her world is just being expanded. And more than that, that I get to share all of these things that I enjoy, like hiking in Europe to build who she is as a person, training the next generation of guidebook authors, I hope. You know, the the impact you're having on your sweet little girls, it's hard to overestimate. I mean, they will always be better for the experiences they're sharing with their mom and dad when you take them hiking. Right. Whether you take them hiking in this hemisphere or in another hemisphere, you're close to nature, you're living well, you're together, you're celebrating what what it means to, to really embrace life on this planet. Thank you, Cassandra, for all of your teaching and best wishes with your guidebooks and with, uh, with your family hiking. Thank you so much. We offer web links to Cassandra's earlier Travel with Rick Steves interviews about hiking the long-distance trails of Europe. You'll find them with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Up next, we're connecting with tour guide Tim Tendick at his hotel in a colorful, time-warp, old-world town in Romania, right in the middle of Transylvania. 
He's been working out the details for a group tour he's organizing and lets us know what he's been digging up. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. If Transylvania and Dracula's castle are all you can relate to when it comes to Romania, then it's time you get to know the real Romania. It's a country with a fascinating cultural heritage and a beautiful countryside. And while tourist crowds are a problem in so much of Europe, Romania is still pretty undiscovered. In fact, it's a secret and a great place to enjoy an inside look at the old Europe and the traditional ways of life. Tim Tendick leads 13-day tours around Romania, and he's our guide today as we explore one of Europe's surprisingly untouristed corners. Tim, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be back here. I always enjoy talking about travel with you. Good, Tim. And right now you you happen to be in Sigishora, the most beautiful medieval city. I am. I'm in Sigishwara today. I'm, uh, oddly enough, I'm about across the street from where the inspiration for Dracula was born. So not That's to feed right. into the Dracula legend, but I'm, I'm right in his hometown. Well, I was going to say that, you know, Romania is one of those countries that most Americans know very little about. And what we know about is... Transylvania. You can't even say Transylvania without trying to do a stupid uh, Dracula (laughs) accent. And Dracula, what's your take on this anyways? He's an interesting figure. He, um, there's definitely some debate over whether Bram Stoker had any idea or if he got the inspiration just from a painting, but there's so much more to him than just this, uh, the Dracula element. His, the historical character had a lot of, uh, interesting aspects between how he filled his place, how he protected his his area, and how he's quintessentially Romanian and how he navigated being on the frontier between more powerful empires. Because Romania has been a, a frontier land for a couple thousand years. And he's part of that story of how how do you survive as a small area between something as powerful as the Holy Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire? How do you make that work? Now, there is a good tour guide. You say you take a, a cliche that won't go away. I mean, Dracula... And you give it real context and real meaning. I mean, he was romanticized in later centuries by some British author, right, in this Mm -hmm. novel about Dracula. But there is so much more. You write that Romania is the ultimate blend of empires and cultures. How is it a blend of empires and cultures? They really, by by virtue of the accidents of geography, uh, they have been kind of on, on the leading edge of pretty much any civilization you can run into. You can see the Greek Hellenic influence and in some of the churches as you move around. You definitely have the Ottoman presence coming from the, the southeast. You definitely have a, a strong allegiance to ancient Rome hmm. that is definitely a forefront in the of the Romanian mind. And you have this amazing German. Uh, when, on my very first visit to Romania, I felt like I was finding pre-World War II Germany in Romania. Absolutely. Where I had breakfast this morning, some of the stucco has come off, and you can see the original artwork underneath there, and it's in German. Wow. So there's these enclaves. We have. I guess people need to understand it's just people moved around, and Germans established little communities all over what we think of as Eastern Europe. And high in the mountains of Romania, you've got these German churches and these German towns, and that's where you are right now. Absolutely. Yeah. You had when the the Holy Roman Empire was kind of growing out to these areas and they were nervous about the Ottoman Empire down there. They brought a whole bunch of Saxons down here to form a kind of a buffer state. So I'm in Sigishwara is the Romanian name for it. But they also it's one of the German towns. So it's also called Schlossberg was its German name. And if you go into one of the cemeteries, which is right by here, all of the names are Heinrich von you know, Stuben. And they're all all yeah. of the epitaphs on the tombstones are in German. 
in the churches. you got these old uh, Lutheran churches, and uh, they're fortified. Can you describe one of these fortified churches to us? Uh, it's, it's really a fascinating thing. Absolutely. As you move around the country, you'll see them halfway up hills or on top of hills, depending. And they always remind me of the, the hilltop towns that you see around Italy, especially around Tuscany, because in a similar way where the church was both the focal point of the community's political life, its religious life, and just its survival in an era of marching armies and conflict around these things, they, they were all mixed together. So you end up where the focal point of the community in the religious aspect has to be the safe house for its survival. So you tend to have an exterior wall with a kind of air slits in some of them. And then the same way you have a keep and a castle, you'll have the church in the center of that wall in the center there. And it really, it mirrors the architecture of a fortification, but this time in a religious setting because the two were really inseparable. Yeah, I remember it, it, it seemed to me almost like the Alamo, uh, as if the Alamo fort was built around a church. And then they had this wooden infrastructure inside the wall where each family had a, a sort of a ledge and a place to sleep and a place to shoot their whatever they were shooting out the slits. And the family was responsible for that little bit of the fortification. And it's just a reminder of the, the tough times they were living through uh, through these centuries. And, and as travelers, we can better understand the story. Tim Tendick's been leading tour groups across Europe for a decade. Lately, he's been exploring the edges of Eastern Europe and Southwest Asia on his own. Tim's with us on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what excites him about Romania as we connect the Wi-Fi through the thick walls of his hotel in Sigashora. That's the colorful Transylvanian town where the story of Dracula was first penned. Tim posts photos and his Romania tour itinerary at guided-by.com. Tim, when I think of Romania, I really do think of kind of a time warp. Uh, I went up to Maramaresh, and it was like literally a living museum. All over Europe, you have open-air folk museums where you see people doing the traditional thing and dressed in the traditional way and living in these traditional homes. In Maramaresh, it's just real. What, what's your experience in Maramaresh? It's actually, it's funny you say like an open-air museum because one of my favorite places to stay up there is sort of an accidental open-air museum. You had... Uh, the wife of a couple actually was the the doctor for that area and the neighborhood got to know that you could pay her if you were lacking on cash, but you needed a little medical care, you could pay her with some of grandma's old stuff from the attic. And every now and then they would say, hey, that whole family has moved off and gone somewhere else. Maybe they were Germans who relocated to Germany or or moved to the European Union for work or whatever it was. And they would buy the entire house and they would number every plank, disassemble it, move it to their one property, reassemble it in the exact same order and then fill it with the things that various families had filled. So it's both a hotel with a few different structures to be in, but it's a sort of accidental open-air museum of houses that are 200 years old. The The man who runs it showed me at one point, there's a little thing to hang your cap on or something by the door. And he said, does it look familiar to you? And I said, well, it's a little metal circle. He said, this is that farmer's gun barrel from World War One." He got home, and he never wanted to fire a gun again, so he sawed the barrel off and stuck it in the wall of his house. And now that house, the family's gone long gone. That house is now just part of this hotel. So you get to live in history, which is still very much just the, the walls around you as you move through Romania. Wow. That reminds me, when I was in Romania as a kid, I was in a house like that staying in a bed and breakfast, 
and they had the skull of their great-grandfather on the mantle. And I, I've never seen that. And they'd go, that's great-grandpa, you know. And uh, it's just there are some prizes awaiting us when we travel. And you now you take groups around Romania, and you're there right now. What? Tell me just about living there. I mean, we can check off all the famous sites in Romania, but what's the food like? Uh, you know, like you just had breakfast this morning. Was there anything that you just that just charms you about the, the food culture of Romania? You gotta like pork and strong flavors. They don't go shy on the onion and the garlic, I'll tell you that much. Hmm. Uh, but as long as you, once you start getting into that, these big hearty meals, you get a sense that it'll get you through the winter, it'll get you through your, your time working in the fields if need be. But they, they know how to work hard, how to eat well. But then one of my favorite things just in terms of being here on a for a longer period is in the evening, a lot of these the row houses, especially in the towns that are kind of descended from this German Saxon heritage, will have a little bench out on the side of the road. And especially the kind of older generation, but everybody who lives there will just come out and sit on the bench. And the men are frequently wearing these those little shepherd newsies caps and everybody just kind of comes out and sits and the dogs wander around and the kids play in the street. And it's this very almost idyllic sense of community where all the neighbors know all the neighbors and there is not a hustle and a bustle. Everyone just sits and kind of enjoys the evening. And then you know that inside some of those hearty dishes with uh, with stewed pork and, and garlic are cooking on the stove. And the old timers are wearing those cute little hats. They're the, they're the most characteristic hats. I bought one, and I just can't imagine wearing it in this hemisphere. <laughs> it makes sense while you're here, but once you get back to uh, Washington, it might be tough. Oh yeah, they're just like a little I don't know, a little a little basket turned upside down that you wear in your head. And <laughs> yeah. and, and these old timers are sitting there with their well worn little basket hats and. Uh, one thing great about traveling around Romania and countries like that is you find farmers that are selling whatever they're producing. They'll, they'll, they'll make their cheese and they'll sell it on the roadside. Absolutely. I love that. One of my favorite things to see is the Transfagarashan Road that goes up into the Fagarash Mountains. And you get up to the top and it's like this little bit of Switzerland up there. It has these amazing mountain views, this beautiful clear lake. And then these little stalls along the side where just local farmers are absolutely coming through and just selling what they happen to have made. So depending on when you go up there, you'll get different products and they taste different because obviously the uh, the milk that they've been using will vary throughout the year, whether it was a grazing season or whether it was hay in the barn season. So you can really taste the different seasons and the flavors of the land as you move around it. It's so... Um... I guess earthy is a good word for it. You're buying that that very, very um, sharp cheese uh, right off the farm, and it's not going to be pasteurized or carefully processed like you might find in a big city. It's just the hard labor and the tradition right there in the bread and the cheese and so on. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Tim Tendek, and Tim leads tours around Romania. He's on the line with us right now from the town of Sigishora, which is got to be the most beautiful town in Romania. Uh, Tim's website is vagabondurges.com. So, Tim, I know that your tours last 13 days. If you're going to take me around Romania for 13 days and show me your idea of the best of it, uh, it's a fascinating country uh, in part because, except for Dracula's castle, most tourists don't know anything about uh, Romania. Uh, tell me how we'd spend 13 days. Just take me on a quick sweep through that itinerary. Uh, Romania is composed, modern Romania is composed of three former principalities. You have Wallachia in the south, which was really kind of a breadbasket for a few centuries there, everybody who came through. And then you have the famous Transylvania in the kind of northwest. And they don't really, they don't actually call it Transylvania here. They'll call it Ardial, just because it does have such a, a regional identity to it. And then there's 
they continue the confusing naming because in the in the kind of northeast you'll hear them talk about Moldova which is different from the Republic of Moldova Moldavia they also call it so you have these three regions and I think it's really important to see all three because while they're united in a, a shared Romanian identity each of them has its own flavor and they also have their own little stereotypes about each other and their own kind of little jokes and things. Huh. And it, it reminds me a lot of Italy where you had these different city states that all blended together to form the modern one. So I like to start Bucharest, the capital where you, where you land at the airport there is down in the kind of Wallachia region. And then as you move up into Transylvania is really probably the easiest place to be. It has such a, a series of great cities from Brasov to Sibiu and then Sigishwara, where I am at the moment, which really feel like these great little Austrian enclaves with the, the pastel-colored houses and, and, the, and the tile roofs. But then if you get up into Moldova or Moldavia, it feels like almost Jeffersonian, that kind of Jeffersonian yeoman idea. It's these little independent farmers. They're very proud. They're very hardworking. They each have their own homestead. And they've just built a remarkable culture there, which also shares the, the collective Romanian experience of being on the borderland between empires. You do get a sense that they spent 50 years under Soviet rule, essentially, when they are in the Warsaw Pact. And you've got all these Soviet-style, you know, these blocky Soviet-style apartment tenements. Uh, and you've got a very charming, uh, I'm thinking of Brazhov here, a very charming um, medieval town center and then you've got these no-nonsense blocks of uh, Soviet apartment flats. You too, absolutely. That um, I mean, I say that there are all these different historical eras, but that's not to say they're all viewed the same. Romania is definitely aware of its communist past, and it's trying is, is, with every bit of its effort to move past it and away from it. Um, but you do mm. see those vestiges, particularly in Bucharest. That's one of my favorite things is, is their mix-all-in. You can see a kind of you know Austrian secessionist house with these amazing crenellations and details next to a fairly, I'll just go ahead and say horrendous kind of Khrushchev-style Soviet tenement block. And then across the street from that, you'll have the nice shiny glass EU kind of German-funded yeah. sort of uh, building. So you'll see them all mixed in. In the capital city there of Bucharest, uh, you've got this what by some measures is the biggest building in the world, this massive palace of parliament that was built by that horrible dictator Ceausescu. And talk about megalomania. He just about impoverished the whole country to build this wacky, massive palace. And I've never used wacky as an architectural term, but now he's long gone and they're trying to figure out what to do with this thing. I mean, talk about a, a communist heritage. It is. And that building is is a fascinating insight into that area and, and how Romania is trying to adapt to it because he bulldozed an entire basically medieval city to build it. And then they were left with this mammoth construction. It's the world's heaviest building. The utility cost just to keep the lights on in winter and heat the thing is kind of insane. So trying to use that space because they don't want to just leave it decrepit. So they have five museums in there. They still have the Congress and the Senate meeting in there. It's still very much a, a living building. They're trying to make the most of it. When you take a tour in there, the tour lasts an hour and a half to two hours, and they just give you a fairly cursory view, but it gives you a sense of how big yeah. it is. It's like Versailles crossed with the Pentagon, crossed with Disneyland. It is wacky ah. is the right word. Wacky. You know, I've, I can think of two grand palaces in Romania, Ceausescu's Parliament Palace, 
in the capital city. And then you've got this beautiful parish palace, which was, we all know Mad King Ludwig's castle, uh, Neuschwanstein. I guess there was a a German prince in Romania, and he wanted to have a a romantic German-style palace. It's a delightful palace. I got really angry when I was in Ceausescu's palace, and I I became much happier when I was at Parish. As you leave Bucharest and you go into the Transylvanian uh, region, uh, do you know what I'm talking about with that Parish Palace? Absolutely, it's one of my my favorite places to go because it's out in the woods. So they keep the parking kind of far enough away, so you have to walk up the up the kind of stone path to get to it. And then um, you don't have the kind of tourist souvenir kind of kitsch press. And then you come up through the woods through these beautiful old buildings, and then you get to the palace itself. And as you move through that level of finery of these beautiful, in this beautiful neo-Renaissance castle with Murano glass chandeliers and just the spare mm-hmm. no expense that, that one could do at the end of the Age of Monarchs, moving mm-hmm. into the early 20th century, it's a really unique place to go. And I think your your comparison with uh, King Ludwig's castle in Neuschwanstein is perfectly apt and really reflects Romania's, one of Romania's main appeals. Is Neuschwanstein gets... A couple million people a year. Pelish Castle gets maybe three hundred thousand. So you're right. getting what a, a fifth but of it's the in, people. It's it's so indicative much of to go there. how many more tourists are in Germany than in Romania. That's mm-hmm. for sure. And most of the tourists who are there are Romanians. <laughs> and Tim, to wrap up our conversation, I, I, I'm just curious as you lead groups around Romania, what, what's the biggest challenge for you, and and what's the biggest joy about sharing the cultural wonders of Romania with your guests? Uh, this is one where I'm gonna gonna give away the tour guide secret because we try to be like the ducks where you're calm on the top of the water while your feet are swimming furiously below you. But the the calm of Romania as you move through where it doesn't have that hustle and bustle because you know people are still living a, maybe a more natural rhythm. I love that where you can see it if as you're driving down the road you'll suddenly have a bit of a backup on the road, and it's because there's a farmer going down the street pulling the day's produce in a horse pulled cart. And it's a beautiful thing to see. It slows you down. It makes you kind of feel the area. But suffice to say, if you're running on a schedule and you're trying to fit in that one more castle or that one more uh, fortified church, it can be a a little bit of an inconvenience, I'll be honest. And if you happen to be making a public television TV show about Romania and you need a a friendly uh, farmer on a horse-drawn cart, you got your choice. And I had no problem getting one of them to let me hop on board. and take all the time in the world to make a good on-camera open for the show. Romania, it's just a pile of surprises filled with beautiful people. Tim Tendek, thanks for joining us, and best wishes with your travels in Romania. It's my pleasure. Mulțumesc, as the Romanians say. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Kazmer Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves Classroom Europe is a fast, free, and fun video archive. It's designed for teachers, travelers, and students gives you immediate access to some 500 short video clips from the Rick Steves Europe TV show library. Clips cover European history, art, culture, food, and geography. Google Classroom Europe or visit ricksteves.com to watch clips and create your own playlist. Teachers love it. Students do, too.